Good evening, welcome to our study of the book of Romans. Welcome to those of you to Edmond campus and those of you joining us live on the live stream. We're glad that you're here. I know I do this every week, but while I'm thinking about it, let me remind you that if you have questions during class, you can text them to this number. It's also on your handout as well. So text your questions to that number and we'll try to answer as many as we can during class. Now, I realize before we get started, I do have to give you a proviso. On your handout, and hopefully those of you on the live stream, it's posted out there for you, but on the back of the handout, there are two pictures. One of the pictures is of Girl Scout cookies. And there are one of two possibilities as to why that is there. First is, this series is being sponsored by Girl Scouts of America. <laughs> troop number 273. Okay, that part's not true. But... I'm going to connect Girl Scout cookies to Romans chapter six, and I know you're thinking, how is he gonna do that? So stay awake till we get to that part, at least, okay? Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. This is one of my favorite chapters in Romans. It's, it literally changed the way I thought about my Christian life. Lord, thank you for bringing us together, both here and online and in so many places and uh, throughout the world, throughout the week as people listen to your word. You are so gracious to teach us, so gracious to have revealed these things to us. I pray that we will take your word, we'll take it into our heart, and Lord, that it will seep into us and then it will come out in the ways and through the opportunities that you give us. Thank you for our country in which we can freely discuss your word. But I also pray for our country for healing and for unity. Pray for our leaders of whatever political party that you would draw their hearts to you and that we might lift your name up in the world in the interests of peace. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are in Romans chapter six. But I want you to see the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, remember, he's writing, this is just a letter. It's a long letter he's writing to some new believers in the city of Rome about 57 A.D., and he has not been there yet, and so he has some really important things to tell them, and he wants to explain to them what this good news is. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? It's incredibly relevant to our lives. And so through the centuries, this is gonna to echo to us. It's really particularly good for us because we think, the way we think is the product of a Greco-Roman tradition we're logical thinkers, we like to see a chain of causation and reasoning, and that's exactly what Paul does in the book of Romans. So we're in chapter six, let's walk through what he's done so far and you'll see everything is connected. Here are excerpts from the first few chapters. Chapter one, verse 16, lays out what he basically wants to talk about. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Remember, gospel means good news. It's just a word that means I have some good news about something that happened in history. He says, I'm not ashamed of that because it's the power of God for the salvation, the rescue of everyone who has faith, everyone who believes. Again, same word, trust, faith, belief, same word. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. In other words, a way to be reconciled to God is being revealed in this event, in the good news about this event. A righteousness that is completely by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. He said, I have really good news. The good news is an event that happened. It is the arrival of God on earth 
God became flesh and dwelt among us, as the Gospel of John says in chapter 1. Jesus Christ comes to earth, dies on a cross to bear the sins of the world, to reconcile us to God, is raised from the dead to guarantee our eternity. That's a historical event. That's not just a biblically historical event, that is a historical event. And that's the good news. He said something really significant happened there if you will trust Jesus Christ. You'll trust he is who he says he is and he did what he said that he did and he can guarantee your future. Do you trust that? That's the good news. Well, the very next verse he says, I'll tell you why you needed to hear this good news. Because if, if there's no problem, then why do I care? whether Christ died for my sins. Well, he says, therein lies the problem. Very next verse, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. So basically what he says is, and he spends three chapters just methodically like a prosecuting attorney walking through it and saying, not one of us has been true to what we know to be true about God, no matter how little it is. Not one of us who thinks we're a moral person has even lived up to our own morality, let alone a holy God. And he says even religious people who are trying to keep all the rules cannot live up to the holiness of God. He says we have a problem and it's called sin. It separates from us from God it is that rebelling against God, saying, I will do things my way. I will be sovereign in my life, not you, God. He said, every one of us stands under that condemnation. And so therein is the problem. Well, he finally, in chapter 3, says, but now a righteousness from God, he's repeating what he started before he made that argument, apart from the law, apart from any kind of behavioral issue, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, if you read your Old Testament, you'd know this was coming. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith, all who believe, all who put their trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel. Well, then he goes on and he says, because of that, and he starts to play it out because we're going to have some questions. Well, what does that mean for us? So in our last lesson, chapter 5, the gospel was in chapters 1 through 4, he says, therefore, because that's true, we have been justified, remember, justify, Righteous, righteousness, justification, all the same word. And so there's a kind of a judicial sense to that, kind of a being declared not guilty. And there's a relational sense to that, meaning we're good with each other. We're reconciled to one another. He says, basically, since we have been justified through trust in Christ, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we spent some time talking about that. And I gave you an idea that I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to talk about this over and over because I really want this to go from your head all the way to your heart. And it is this. The truth of your relationship with God, your status with God, has nothing to do with the way you feel about how you're doing with God. It's not a feeling-based thing. Now, don't misunderstand me. Having zeal and affection and love for God is important, but your relationship with God does not go up and down based on how you feel about it. God has done something objective. The gospel is an actual historical event, and God has actually done something objectively true. When you place your trust in Christ, you have been made right with God through that trust, and you have peace with God. Even if you don't feel it, 
That's one of the key things, and it's one of the different things about Christianity, but that is the essence of the gospel. And so we need to let the truth of what we know seep into our experience and shape our experience. You, you'd be surprised, you probably wouldn't, because we've all ridden this little, what I call the Christian roller coaster. And that is, I feel close to God today because I've been behaving pretty well. But, well, wait a minute. You know, I've been praying much lately, and, you know, my marriage isn't that good, you know, mostly my wife. But I admit I did a few things too, you know. And, but, you know, you get on that roller coaster, don't you? And you kind of feel like my relationship with God kind of goes up and down with my behavior, maybe my circumstances a little bit. That's not what the gospel is saying. It says, no. You have an objectively true relationship with God, despite your circumstances and despite your feeling. That will change the way you think about your life, and you can get off the emotional roller coaster and have confidence in your relationship with God because of your trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, this is all review, but that's a key idea. Well, in our last lesson, uh, the first verse was, therefore... Because of this objective truth and having placed our trust in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And the last uh, verses of that chapter says, the law was added so trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, you can't be so far away from God that if you turn toward him and place your trust in him, Jesus Christ's sacrifice and God's good will toward you that's another way to think of what grace is, is he's favorably disposed toward you. It is greater than any sin. Now, I know you think, okay, well, that's true, that's nice. But let that sink in a little bit, because there are people right now in the sound of my voice, and there are a ton of people in the world that you know that do not think they could ever be right with God. They feel like they've been too far away. They have done things that are too bad. They don't feel worthy even to themselves, let alone to God. That verse is powerful, and we need to preach that. I mean, we need to tell people the grace of God is greater than sin. As your sin increases, God's grace increases. If you are willing to be put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can be justified and have peace with God because his grace is greater than your sin. There are, if you don't need to hear that, I, I know there are people in your life that need to hear that. So please take, take that and go from here and spread that word. So he said, so just as sin reigned in death, grace will reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the end of the review. Okay, that's what we've talked about so far. That is really good news. I mean, it started off bad, didn't it? That whole wrath part was a little scary, like, oh no, we have a terminal problem. But then the good news of the gospel. And as Tim Keller said, without understanding how serious our problem is and the wrath of God, we'll never fully appreciate the beauty and the love God poured out on us in the gospel. So I think that's good for us to remember. And now we rejoice in what chapter 5 was talking about. Well, let's get practical. This is what he wants to talk about in chapter 6. Paul is basically going to anticipate two objections. Let's suppose we are Christ followers. We have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, and we say, not my will, but your will. I'll follow you wherever you go. I trust you. I trust you even to the point of taking me to the other side of death, that I trust that death is not the end, and I will be with you forever. 
That's trust. So we placed our faith in Christ. And your grace is greater than my sin. Here's an interesting question I'd like to explore because Paul wants to explore it. Those Christians had this question, and a lot of us do too, and that is this. Okay, so now that I'm a Christian, I noticed that I haven't just automatically stopped sinning. Let me pause for a moment. Can I do what's called an excursus, uh, which is a, so like a, it's a scholarly way to say I want to go down a rabbit hole for a minute. Okay, so if you can't keep a train of thought, you just call it an excursus, and it sounds really good. I want to talk about sin for just a second because I'm throwing that word out a lot. I want to remind you what sin is because every one of us probably has a different... When I say the word sin, when the Bible says the word sin, probably we have different pictures coming up in our mind. So let me just remind you of some of the things that the Bible considers sin. At the essence of sin is rebellion against God. It, it, everybody worships something. And it is worshiping something other than God, whether it's fame, fortune, success, fear, pride, whatever it may be, at its essence. But let me give you some examples that you don't always think about. Some of you will say, oh, yeah, being addicted uh, is bad. Uh, cheating on your taxes, well, okay, that's quasi-bad. No, but seriously, you, you tend to think about some big things. But do you think about greed? Do you think about placing your trust in your 401k? Do you think about the idea of, I'm going to amass a lot of money. Yes, I trust you, Lord, but I need more money, or I need more things. Gossip, slander, rage, holding a grudge, being angry. The Bible talks about a lot of these things as, as really being idolatrous. It's really not surrendering things to God. So, okay, so I'm going to come back to the main thing. But when I say the word sin, I want you to think about that's what the Bible talks about. Yes, it talks about sexual immorality as sin, but it also talks about gossip as sin. So my point is sin convicts. Every one of us should feel like, yes, I do still commit sin, even though I am committed to Christ. And here's kind of the difference there. This is the way I would describe it to you uh, is this way is Christians commit sin, but Christians are not committed to sin. Christians commit sins, but Christians are not committed to the idea of sinning. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's go on into chapter 6, and I want to read you how Paul starts this. He says, okay, I know what you're thinking. He says, what shall we say then? Meaning, I know that you guys have a question. Can we go on sinning because there's so much grace. Now, when he says, can we go on sinning, he means that, that's a great translation, because it doesn't mean, can I commit a sin here or there? It means, can I just keep living the way I was living before? Fair question. I mean, everything we've heard so far is place your trust in Christ, and now it's like, okay, I got to get out of jail free card. Why can't I just keep living the way I was living? He said, I understand why you might ask that. If since you have all this grace, why not keep on sinning? Now, remember we talked about sin in the Bible. And this will make a lot of the New Testament make a lot of sense to you. The Bible thinks about sin as in two ways that are both true. One, sin can be committing an act that is wrong or not doing something that you should do, for example a sin of commission or a sin of omission. In other words, it's like breaking a rule or doing something, telling a lie or 
committing sexual immorality or whatever. That is an act that is a sin. It's kind of transactional. And when I say transactional, I mean it's kind of like a specific thing that you do or maybe that you just don't do, that you should have done. Okay? So sin is thought of in that way, but sin in the Bible is also thought of as a condition, as a way of life. And there's this theological idea that really across the spectrum of Orthodox Christianity, I mean, there are all kinds of theologies, everybody agrees on this. It's called the depravity of humanity. And depravity now means, oh, you're a terrible person. That's not what that theological idea means. It means that you sin and you cannot stop on your own. And that humanity does not have the ability on our own to measure up to a holy God. We cannot do that without help. Hence the good news of the gospel, right? God did that for us. Well, that idea of depravity addresses not just committing sins, but our very nature. I like to say it this way, we are bent towards sin. If you just leave us alone, you will see very sinful world. Think about Noah. In the time of Noah, what happened? Humanity was horribly bad. Pick up our newspaper today and look around the world and think about man's inhumanity to man. You have people starving while people have plenty. You have people being killed. You have children going hungry. You have abuse. I mean, we have horrible things. That is the inevitable result of a sin problem, a condition of sin. So the Bible thinks of sin in both of those ways. This one is talking about, well, can I not just go ahead and live in this condition of sin? I mean, I was a pretty good guy, but, you know, I wasn't perfect and I didn't really measure up to God. But now that I've trusted Christ, he's taken care of that for me. I'll just keep living the way I was. Well, here's what Paul says about that. He says, by the way, this is one of the strongest things without cussing that you can say in Greek. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning because of all this grace? Absolutely not. I mean, this is emphatic. He says, by no means. He said, we died to sin. How can we live in it anymore? In other words, how can we keep on? Don't you realize, this is kind of his, you idiots, you, okay? Don't you realize that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I want to stop there and just and remind you of this. Jesus Christ didn't come to make better people. He came to make brand new people. Jesus didn't come to change your behavior per se. That's probably going to happen as a, as a, a consequence. And we'll talk about that. But Jesus didn't come to make us better people. He came to make us new people. That's exactly what this is saying. Just as he was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, in other words, this sinful nature, this bent towards sin, you can't reform it, it has to die. And he said, that's what happened. Our old self died on the cross with Jesus Christ. This is really gonna change the way you think about your Christian life. 
He said, so our old self was crucified with him so the body of sin may be done away with. We are then no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer obligated to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse nine, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has any hold on him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, consider yourselves, count yourselves. That's a thinking word. In other words, he said, he doesn't say, in the same way, I hope you feel warm and fuzzy. Now, I'm not knocking your feelings. I just want you to know that your relationship with God does not have much to do with how you feel at the moment. He's saying, this is true, and here's how I want you to think. He said, in the exact same way, I want you to consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For I love the way the NIV translates this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. You are not trying to measure up by your conduct, but you are under grace. What you and I could not do, Christ did on the cross. And so what he's saying is you, that you died. Let me connect the Bible a little bit. You're going to see this idea all through the New Testament. Do you remember in uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus before the crucifixion, teaching his disciples, and he said this, if anybody wants to follow me, remember this, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. What does that mean? Die. It means you have to die. Did he mean you have to go physically die? No. He meant this. Your old sinful bent nature to sin has to die. He said, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and then you can follow me. And so you see this beautiful idea. What's Paul's answer to why can you not live the life you had before? He said, you do not understand what has happened. You, that, that part of you is dead. And you now live a new life. You are a new person. So let me stop answer a question there, but I want to talk just a little bit more about this idea of continuing that sinful life. Um, the question is that no matter how far we've fallen, God's grace is always greater. But our world is becoming increasingly a place where a mere accusation can ruin someone's life. For example, politicians. How can we ever convince our world that those who have committed actual sin but have turned away and corrected course should even be considered for forgiveness. Yes, let me reframe that just a little bit in case you couldn't hear it. Uh, it's, it's a complicated question. I'll try to give you a little bit simpler answer, but that's a very good question. In our world today, you don't really have the idea of repentance. You don't really have the idea of an old self dying and a new self, becoming a new person. That's not a secular idea at all. And so referring to some of the things in the news today, but actually in our political system and in the political system of the world is that people can be considered guilty by an accusation. And even if someone is guilty, let me expand this just a little bit. The point is that goes with you through all of your life, at least in our public world. That is not a Christian idea at all. Not that people don't do things wrong, not that there aren't consequences, but the idea is that 
Jesus Christ can remake us into new people. That's one of the reasons why I think living authentic Christian community in compassion and forgiveness and repentance, and I'll tell you what repentance means in a minute, but a little bit more about that. I want to give you a graphic idea of that, is will be so appealing to this world. Because when you read the newspapers and you see that, nobody wants to live in a world that's this ugly. It is a sinful, fallen world. And people deep down don't want that. They want what this community of believers who love one another, have compassion, are forgiving and forbearing with one another, helping one another, tough love with one another, out of interest for people. The world desperately wants what you have. But yes, there's no doubt that there is a stark difference between how we should look as a community of faith and how our world works. There are a lot of people out there who consider themselves to be Christians, say they believe in Jesus, but they don't practice the spiritual disciplines, come to church, etc., and um, live lives of sin. What happens to those people when Jesus comes again? What happens to people who say, I'm a Christian, but, uh, for example, let me just reframe it into our text here. They go on sinning so that grace may abound. In other words, the old self has not died, and they do not walk in newness of life. What happens when Jesus comes? Jesus basically taught, I want to just let you think about this teaching of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 7, and then I'll move on from this, because we'll probably get a more pointed question later about this. But Think about what he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapters 5, 6, 7 of Matthew, one of the most brilliant sermons, if you will, ever given. I mean, it's just, it's awe-inspiring whether you're a Christian or not. But at the end of that, he says this, very, very interesting, should be a little disturbing. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But on the, in other words, when he says, says to me, Lord, Lord means, hey, I'm a Christian and I follow you. You're my master. I don't worship an idol. I worship you. That's what he means by that. He says, not everybody will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? He said, some will say to me on that day, talking about judgment day, didn't we do all these good things in your name? And Jesus says, and I will say to you, depart from me. I don't know who you are. We don't know each other. And so you see that contemplated in the teaching of Jesus that merely saying I follow Jesus is not sufficient. Now, that's, that's not a brilliant observation. What you see Paul saying is, can I just keep on living the way I was? He says, absolutely not. Do you not understand your old self died and you're raised in newness of life? There is a transformation that happens when we put our trust in Christ and surrender to him. And I'll talk about that a little more in just a second. Are all sins the same in the eyes of God? Are all sins the same in the eyes of God? Um, let me put it this way. All sins convey the same guilt before God. There are not misdemeanors and felonies. Okay, I mean, you see what I'm saying is that you can say, look, all I've got is a couple misdemeanors, right? Unlawful possession, that's it. He's a dealer, he's a felon. I should go in, he should not go into heaven. It's not like that. In other words, if you remember, and I tell you that not because that's what Terry thinks, but remember chapters 1, 2, 3, Paul said, everyone has sinned. He didn't say, some of you are worse than others. 
But he said, everyone has sinned. So all rebellion against God, all sin, puts us in a rebellious position to God. Are some sins worse than others? Now I'm going to give you an opinion. It seems to me that, yes, some sins do appear to me to be, by my standards, worse than other sins. But I don't want you to think because of that 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 means that God has a grading system. All sin alienates us from God. But it's obvious to us that some sins are visible and some sins aren't. Some of us look really holy and yet may lust, may uh, gossip, may you know, have other anger kinds of things. We too may be deeply in need of the Holy Spirit's healing, which we'll also talk about a little more. So God doesn't really have a ranking system. But just to be realistic, you look around and you go, some sins are visible, some aren't. Some sins hurt more people than other sins hurt people, but all sin alienates us from God. So hopefully that's a reasonable answer. Um, can we lose our reconciliation with God if we've been transformed into a new being? I just knew that was coming. I'm so proud of you guys. I want to hold that question until we get through a little bit more of this, but what you're basically asking is, and you're using good language, you're using the language of our text. Since I've been reconciled with God, my old self has died, I've been raised to newness of life, and I follow Christ, my trust is in him. Is there any way that I can get out of that condition? Can I lose, in some sense, that reconciliation with God? Hold that thought. That's a great question. Let me finish this piece, and we'll get to that in the next piece. Okay, so... Here's the interesting thing. Grace, I like this quote, grace reaches where humans are and accepts them as they are. Now that's a half truth. You're gonna hear that. God accepts you as you are. That's halfway true. And he really makes a good point here is because if that's true, then I'll just keep living my sinful life. Why wouldn't I, right? Out of a sense of obligation? It's not that powerful, right? But listen to what he says. Grace reaches humans where we are, and God takes us where we are. In other words, you don't have to clean yourself up to say, okay, I did my best, I'm pretty cleaned off here, now will you accept me? That's not the way this works. Grace is greater than any amount of sin. God takes us where we are as we are. Because anything less would result in nobody's being saved, because every one of us has a sin problem. Every one of us is alienated from God. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone. That's one of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation. It's a deeply biblical idea. But grace is always transformative. God accepts us where we are, but God does not intend to leave us where we are. That's really well said, because that old man died. That's what Paul said. You can't keep living the way you were, because grace must transform you. It must, because you cannot be saved with sin imbuing me, with the terminal condition of sin. That's what my trust in Christ did. It basically, my old self has died, and I have been, the Bible also uses that word, you have been transformed from death into life. You'll see that language in the New Testament, very consistent. So it does not keep us where we are. Here's the way I'd really like to explain this. I'm gonna use, I have two pictures and uh, this is one of my favorite ways to understand this idea of can we continue in sin. Let's suppose, I want to show you these two roads. This is me living my life, and I'm going down this road. And that can, that's my conduct. 
That's me going for the things that are important to me. For you, it may be pride. For me, it may be security. For somebody else, it may be fame. Whatever it is, it's my getting and wanting and grasping and enjoying and you know weekends at the lake and all of that kind of thing. In other words, it's just me being me and basically being separated from God. We encounter Jesus Christ, and I'd like you to think of it this way, and we change direction. I really want you, this, I hope that this, this helps you a lot because this is going to explain a lot of things to you. The word repent in Greek means literally to change your mind. But what it came to mean, and it's what it means now to repent means, I used to be doing this, but no more. Now I'm going to do that. Right? We don't always use that word. It's become a churchy word, but honestly, it happens all the time. People repent. They change their ways. They change direction. They realize this isn't where every self-help book in the world is based on repentance. They just don't use that word. It's like, hey, you used to be doing this, you loser. Start doing this. Be a winner. Right? In other words, it's change what you're doing. Commit to make a change. That's repentance. That's how we come to Christ. We come to Christ saying, I surrender. I place my trust in you. And I used to be going down this road, but now I'm going to go down that road. So think about that conversion as changing direction. You are no longer on the same road. So what this question is, can we go on, continue in sin because we've met Christ? What it's basically saying is, can I continue on down this road now that I'm continuing on this road? And Paul goes, no. I mean, of course you cannot. When you put it in a metaphor like this, you go, well, no, of course you can't. If you turned off on that road, you can't continue down this one. That's not possible. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He said, your old self died. In other words, you used to be going down that road, and now you're going down this one. You can't travel that road anymore. Does that help a little bit? That's what he's saying. Now, let me take it one step further. Have you ever heard this accusation? My neighbor Joe is not a Christian, and he's a much better person than most of the Christians I know. Have you ever heard of that? I'm going to tell you how Christians understand that, why that, you, you can't give a, a soundbite answer to that, but now you can understand why that's totally irrelevant. Because first of all, it has nothing to do with how well you act, because you can never act good enough. That's chapters one through three. Everybody's got a terminal sin problem. But the good news is Jesus Christ did what we could not do. So when you place your trust in him, old self dies, raised to walk in newness of life, I'm following you, what has happened? You're on a different road. Here's the interesting thing. Joe is on this road, and I'm on that road. We're on different paths, aren't we? Joe happens to be at mile marker 100. He's a really good guy. He's just on a road that leads to death. He's just going to get there faster. And he's going to be a nicer guy when he gets there. But however nice a guy he is, that road only goes one place. I, however, you, are on a different road. I may be only at mile marker one. And it's not a race. Have you ever seen in the New Testament, this is interesting, where it says, how good do you have to be? How good do you have to behave to go to heaven? You'll never find it. 
because it doesn't matter if you're at mile marker one or if you're at mile marker 100. What matters is you're on the right road. And however long it takes you to get there, that road goes to heaven and Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, I'm going to get to chapter 621, but look at this. What benefit did you reap when you were on the original road from all those things you're now ashamed of, now that you're on the other side of the cross? You look back and you go, I repent of those things. That was wrong. That was sin. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm on this road. He said, those things result in death. In other words, it doesn't matter how good a guy you are. It doesn't matter if you did a bunch of sins or a few sins. That road only goes one place. He says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. That road on the right goes to eternal life. So it's really not about my neighbor's a better person. Yeah, it's probably true. But he's on a road that only goes one place. And you may be a beginning Christian and you may still have vestiges of that sinful nature that God is pruning from you. We're going to talk about next week about how that happens. But the road you're on goes to heaven. So let me just stop there because I don't think that's a hard concept, but I'd like you to think about it in that way. We're not on the same road as people who have not accepted Christ. We are on completely different roads. If you think about it that way, what the New Testament says, it's going to make a ton more sense. Okay, moving on so we can get to this question. Um, he moves on then and he says, okay, I realize you have another question to ask. Okay, fair enough, Paul. We can't continue down that road because we're on a different road. We can't continue to live a life of sin because that old man died. In other words, these are all metaphors to explain what happens at the cross. I'm now a new person. I'm now on a new road. It doesn't go where my old life used to go. That's why when you talk about surrendering to Christ, you talk about I surrender my ambitions, my goals, everything. I live for Christ. I no longer even have the same goals I used to have. I'm not even going the same place. So that's what is meant by that. But he says, but you may also ask, shall we commit a sin because we're not under law but under grace. Now what he's saying is, okay, we can't walk that, but we Christians, even though we're on a new road, we still step off the road. We still commit sins. That's true, we do. He says, so is that okay? He goes, no, it's not okay. He's, and listen, but the reason he says it's not okay is not what you think. Don't you know, that's another, you idiots. Don't you know? that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you're slaves to the one that you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, that road, or uh, to obedience, which leads to righteousness, a different road, you obey God. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. In other words, you began to do what Jesus told us to do and you're on another road. He said, you've been set free from sin. You become slaves to righteousness. In other words, God owns me now. Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. What he means is everything about me belongs to him. I didn't keep any of that stuff. I want all of that behind me. I want everything I am to be Christ. We sometimes say being all in for Christ. He said, I'll put, I'm putting this in human terms of slavery because you're weak in your natural selves. He said, look, I realize this isn't a perfect analogy and I realize it's not pleasant to talk about slavery. He said, but this is the best analogy for you to understand it. 
He said, basically, when you, verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you did not think much about righteousness. But what benefit were you reaping over there? Because the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. He said there are two roads. He said, but the reason that it matters whether or not you commit sins is a different answer. Let me go take a little detour. I want to take you to 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, he's, t- he's talking to believers. We're not, we've left that world. We're talking to people who are following Christ. He said, even when we follow Christ, if we claim that we never commit a sin, we're lying. We deceive ourselves and, and we're not being truthful. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgive us our sins. That's what you're expecting to hear, isn't it? Because all my sins are covered on the cross. But that's why Paul was saying, then does it make any difference if I commit sins? Okay, sure, I can't go whole hog lifestyle because I'm on a different road, but does it really matter if I commit sins? And Paul said, oh, it absolutely matters. But not for the reason you think, because those sins, if we will confess them, he will forgive them. But listen to what he says a few verses later. At the same time, this is also true. My dear children, in chapter two, he writes this, I write this to you so that you will stop sinning. He's talking about believers. He said, it's not okay to keep doing it. If I sin, will God forgive me? Yes, he will. But it's not okay to keep doing it. In other words, there's this battle. He says, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse three, we know that we have come to know Christ if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know Christ, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Back to our question about, if my life doesn't look like I'm following Christ, then maybe this is what we're talking about. He says, if you do say you know him, but you don't do what he commands, you're kidding yourself. You're on that road. You're not on this road. This road is where you move to obey Jesus Christ. He says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Jesus Christ must live as Jesus Christ lived. So, Can you commit a sin and it be forgiven? Yes. Can we commit sins without being concerned? No, because it's now consistent to be what we are. are. Listen to this quote. This is a good way to think about it. When a non-Christian sins, they are acting in accord with their identity, who they are. That was me. When I would commit sins, it was like, yeah, that's what I do. I mean, yeah, I'm definitely greedy and I'm definitely vengeful and yeah, that guy did something bad to me, so if I ever get a chance, I'll do something bad back, and I've got a grudge. That's just who I was before I came to Christ, before I repented. And I suppose all of you were too. But we were acting in accord with who we are. Why wouldn't they sin? That's what I mean. If you think about people who don't follow Jesus Christ, expect them to sin. Two-year-olds, little sinners, expect them to sin. It's okay in their case. My point is, is... Why would you not expect it? But when someone is united to Christ, everything changes. What does he mean? Same thing N.T. Wright says, grace always transforms us. Paul says, our old self died and we are now new people. We are going, I'm using all these metaphors so that something clicks. We used to be walking down that road, now I'm walking down this road. He says, but when a Christian steps off the road, to use that analogy, or commits a sin, we're actually... Uh, There's a new me. When a Christian sins, we're actually acting against our identity. In other words, that's not really who we are anymore. Why would we sin? It's the exception for us. Therefore, if I sin, it's because I just don't remember who I am now. 
I've forgotten what has been done for me in Christ. In other words, I'm still not fully formed into Christ. That's why these sins are forgiven. But it matters because I'm being fully formed into Christ. Uh, let me give you a couple of passages. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to understand this, this idea is all through your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about that in chapters 9 through 11. That should be fun. He chose you before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. That's not what I am now, but that's where this road leads. Uh, think about Romans 8:28. In all things, God works for the good of those who uh, love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he called, uh, he, well, let me skip to the foreordained part. Those he called, he predestined to what? That verse says this, predestined, your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's Romans 8, 29. What's he saying? He said, you are on this road, and the end of this road is you're going to look like Jesus Christ. You're going to be holy. You're going to be blameless. In other words, you are going to shed all of that old man. In other words, that is what you are saved for. And so you get this idea that will I commit a sin? Yes. Will Christ forgive it if I, if I confess it? I repent. In other words, like, no, I'm not going back to that road. I'm with you, Lord. Why did uh, God say to David? I mean, David was like a serious sinner. If you ever read his story in First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament, the guy's a serious sinner. I mean, he couldn't teach Sunday school here. But my point is, why does God say he's a man after my own heart? Why did God use him? Because every time he stepped off the path, he came back and he said, I have sinned, I repent. In other words, that's not the man I want to be. I'm following you. Please forgive me. And God said, yes, let's go. And off we go. Does that make any sense to you? That's why committing sin is a bad thing. Not because God's keeping score. It's because we are becoming like Christ. Our next lesson, by the way, we're going to talk about how does God do that with us? How does he take us along that road? That's the next thing Paul's going to talk about. But let's camp out here for a few minutes on this before we move on. Yes, question. You mentioned David. So the question is, those who lived and or died before Jesus, what's their opportunity? Those who live, okay, now that's a rabbit trail, okay? That's not even just an excursus. All right, no, that's a good question. What about people who live before the time of Jesus? We need to talk about that, but I don't want to give you a long answer now because i got 12 minutes and there's some really cool stuff coming. We haven't gotten to the Girl Scout cookies yet. So basic answer to that is, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a mystery. I want you to hold a couple of ideas in tension that the Bible says both of these are true. God will be just and no one comes to God without Christ. So in some sense, everyone will have an opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ. I know, that started more questions than it answered, didn't it? Yeah, just hold that thought for a little while. We'll talk about that. Okay, let me keep moving because I want to follow this. Remember, can I continue living in sin? No, you're on a completely different road. That old guy died. You're a new person in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Ephesians chapter 1, 13, when you trusted Christ... The Holy Spirit was placed in you as a deposit, a guarantee that you would reach the end of the road. Man, this is powerful stuff. This is like, wow, you should feel good about this. This is true about you. Well, what about committing sins, though? Because, you know, I don't want to. I mean, I love God, and I'm going to follow him, but, you know, I fail. Yes, and he will forgive you those sins, but they matter. 
And that here's why they matter, is because you're being formed into his image. So, what shall we say then? All right, so let me get to this illustration. This is the best way I can think of to illustrate this idea. Okay, so every winter, I gain somewhere between five and 10 pounds. And you're like, yeah, it happens. We're more sedentary. That's not my issue. I can tell you exactly when I'm gonna gain five to 10 pounds. And it's gonna coincide exactly when Girl Scout cookies get here. We buy cases. And when I say we, I mean I buy cases of Girl Scout cookie. We freeze Girl Scout cookies. So when Girl Scout cookies come in the first quarter, I have my connections, I have my suppliers. And so when they come in the first quarter, I realize I'm gonna gain weight. And this is just so true. I mean, it's not, I'm not proud to confess this to you, but this is just true. So a few weeks later, I get on the scales, I go, whoa, you are up a little and those pants are feeling a little tight. Here's my question. Which Girl Scout cookie made me weigh 10 pounds more? Think about that. Boy, I sure hope this makes sense, because it really makes sense to me. Which Girl Scout cookie of the hundreds that I ate made me weigh 10 pounds more? Well, you, you can't actually answer that. Which one was it? Was it number 79 or was it number 134? Don't know. But I do know this, those Girl Scout cookies made you weigh 10 pounds more. But I don't know which one. Does that make sense? Look at this passage. He's saying, he's answering the question, why does it matter if I commit sins? Because they can be forgiven. Oh, absolutely. You repent, you confess, those sins are gone. That Christ covered them. So then why does it matter? Do you not realize that when you offer yourself to someone to obey them, you become a slave to the one you obey. Whether it's slave to sin, which leads to death, back on that road, or slaves to righteousness, which leads to eternally. Jesus talked about this too. Remember this when he said, no one can serve two masters. You will either serve one or the other, but you cannot serve two. And so that's what this is saying is, whichever one you serve, that is your master. And you can be mastered by sin, which leads to death, or righteousness, obedience, which leads to life. Sin is like Girl Scout cookies in the sense that I can't tell you which sin as a Christian is going to make a big difference. But I do know if we continue in it habitually, at some point you will weigh 10 pounds more, which is my metaphor for you're not on that road anymore. You can step off this road so many times and keep going, and you end up back on the other road. In other words, what he's saying is the reason that Christians don't want to commit sins is not because God's going to, he's keeping a score. It's just, I realize, like those Girl Scout cookies, I can be forgiven, I can be forgiven, I can be forgiven, but at some point, which no one can define, I'm actually serving sin. I'm no longer serving righteousness. Does that make sense? Sure enough, you eat enough Girl Scout cookies, you're going to gain weight. Sure enough, you commit enough sins, you will become a slave to sin. Well, can I quantify that? Can I tell you which one? No, can't. Possible. Scripture doesn't even try to. Paul says, that's why sin is so dangerous. Can you be forgiven? Yes. But at some point, you actually become enslaved by it. You and I both know that's true. 
Every one of us knows that's true because we've all been there. We've all been on the verge of, I sinned and I for, forgive me, I repent. But if I keep doing that at some point, it will capture me. Remember what Peter says? Your enemy, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion. In other words, he wants to capture you. And he starts it by, that sin's okay, God will forgive you. That one's okay too. You can eat another Girl Scout cookie, Terry. You can eat another Girl Scout cookie. And one day you wake up and you go, where am I? That, that can happen to us. That's how the Bible answers the question. Why is committing a sin a problem for us? When they can be forgiven. Because at some point, I will become a slave to sin. So we turn away from that. It's just a different kind of an answer to that question. Uh, so I was going to talk a little bit about the Exodus motif, and I'm going to skip that because I want to come back to this question. Is then there any way that I cannot be reconciled? Or I can lose my salvation. I can get off the road. Popularly right now, three schools of thought. One school of thought, and this is a Calvinist position. This is a Reformed position. It says, no, you cannot. Once you have had this encounter with Christ, you have placed your trust in Christ, you have been baptized into his death and raised his resurrection, you are a new creature and something supernatural has happened to you. I don't mean you feel it, like, oh, you've had this miraculous feeling. Nope. Something supernatural has happened. Your old self has died. And now God in his sovereignty will keep you on that road. They are not saying you can sin all you want to. What they're saying is you will not because you are now a new creature and sin will, be, will continue to be stripped out of your life and you will indeed walk that path. You cannot get off the path. Not saying you can sin all you want and still be saved. They're just saying you can't get off the path. That's a Calvinist position. You, once you are saved, once you're on that road, God's sovereignty is such that I will keep you on this road. Okay. Other position. Arminian, Wesleyan, those of you in the Methodist tradition, uh, a Wesleyan, this church is in the Wesleyan tradition, would say this, that since you have some measure of free will to respond to God and say, Nobody thinks you just wake up one day and say, I decided I'm going to follow you. No, you have to have what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We can't do it on our own. But once we say, I, I, I will respond to that grace, I accept you, I repent of the past, and I will follow you. It is traditional Arminian and Wesleyan thinking that you can stray so far off the path. You can become enslaved to sin, and you can change direction back this way. Saying you can lose your salvation is a terrible way to say that. In other words, that's a choice. God's not unfaithful. He didn't lose me, but I turned my back on him. Is that possible? The traditional Arminian Wesleyan thinking is, well, yeah, it is possible to do that. You'd be a fool to do it, but you, you can. This passage is probably a little more favorable to that understanding. Now, there are a lot of other passages in the Bible, and we need to think about it all together. Both of those are positions that Christians hold. The position in the middle is the most popular, by the way, and that is, yes, you have some free will, but once you get on that road, you no longer have the will to get off. 
In other words, it, it blends the free will of Wesleyanism and it blends the sovereignty of God. You will not get off that road of Calvinism and it's kind of a middle road. Baptist churches, kind of, when, when you hear that doctrine of once saved, always saved, that middle road is the way I would characterize that. So I just want you to know Christians do see that a little differently. The point is, what does the Bible say? All I know for our purposes is what the Bible says is this. Don't eat too many Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> because sooner or later, you're not going to like what you see on the scale. How was that for kind of dancing around that? Well, I want you to think, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm going to run for office. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I want you to understand, Christians understand that a little differently. But, but everybody would agree with this, and that is... We commit sins, God will forgive us. But it's not okay, it's not good for me. At some point, I can become a slave to sin. I will continue to follow Christ. Well, how? What does that process look like to walk that road? That may be the next thing that you and I are asking. Well, that's what we're gonna talk about next. We're gonna talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in Christian life. That's Paul's very next thing. He's gonna say, I know what you're thinking. Like, okay, I know I can't keep sinning, can't walk down that road, I change roads, but I commit sins, and it seems like I'm even in a little bit of a battle with sin. My old man wants to reach out of the grave, my old self, and pull me back into those old ways. We've all felt that, haven't we? Paul says, I know exactly what you mean, and in chapter 7 and 8, he's going to tell us how do we deal with that. So, in the meantime, the truth of what we talked about today, I want you to think about this. I want you to pray not to perform better. God help me be a better person. God help me do this. God help me measure up. Pray for a changed heart. God, let my heart feel what my brain knows. This, I am a new creation. I'm not improved. I'm a new creation. Help me to live out of who I am. I am your child. I am your creation. And remember this, you are loved and God is at work in you supernaturally to draw you to him. In other words, God is on your side. Actually, we're on God's side. But the point is, he says, I can get you to the end of this road. You are in the palm of my hand. You keep following me. When you step off, you confess, you repent, and you get right back on this road because I can deliver you safely to the end of this road, which is eternal life. I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to think about your life not as, am I doing good, am I not doing good? Am I being a good guy, am I not being a good guy? Pray for a change of heart and then just act authentically out of who you now are. Okay, next week we'll talk about the Spirit's role because the Holy Spirit has an agenda. The Spirit that lives in you actually has a mission and I'll tell you what that is. Thanks guys. <laughs>